Welcome to the Personal Best Podcast, powered by Jets Australia. My name is Bartholomew, but we are friends now. You can call me Bart. To my left is no one. There is no one to my left today. So I'm very lonely in the podcast studio all by myself. Jacob has decided to travel over to Japan to drink some sake and eat some ramen. So it will be a fitness-filled solo episode today. Team, we are talking about fitness trackers. Will they help me lose weight? Squatting. Is it better to squat deeper or to go heavier? We're going to talk about training with somato types. Is there any clout to training to your body type? What's the easiest way to balance my left and right sides? Is skipping breakfast the best way to lose weight? And much, much more. Let's get into the episode. There's plenty of fitness to get through today. If you are new here, welcome to the show. It is really good to have you here. Make sure you do follow the show so you know when new episodes drop so we can put that little piece of the fitness puzzle together for you uh, every single week. And if you are a veteran here, if you've been listening for a while, thank you even more. It means the world to see, see reoccurring listens coming from your device. So make sure you're following. Make sure you share the show when you see us on social media. Join us on all the all the socials, Jets Australia, J-E-T-T-S. And I want to quickly start the show with um, a bit of a story. I um, I went shopping on the weekend. I don't often go shopping. I'm not a shopping guy. But the things I went shopping for are a pre-workout and a new pillow, both to aid in my fitness journey. So I don't know if you've ever walked into a supplement shop recently, but it is a sensory overload. Uh, the music is blaring. There's lots of very bright colors, lots of unicorn-flavored stuff and cereal-flavored proteins. And it can be very overwhelming. And I went in looking for something to help with blood flow, with vasodilation, which I do sometimes if I'm about, about to enter a more higher volume program. So if I'm doing some more conditioning work, I'll sometimes invest a bit of money into some beetroot um, and et cetera to help with carrying the oxygen around. And I went in and the amount of pre-workouts that are out there at the moment are absolutely ridiculous. And some of the names are absolutely crazy as well. In fact, if you want to have a real laugh, just have a look at a few of the pre-workouts and read like the inspirational blurb that's on the back of it. The one I've got in particular is quite interesting. But I just wanted to throw out a, um, a buyer beware cautionary tale here. So these things, right, are heavily flavoured and have a lot of additives to them. So if you're already eating a diet that's high in artificial sweeteners, high in, high in um, artificial colours and flavours, maybe reconsider or maybe think about going for a pre-workout. If indeed you want it, you don't really need one. But maybe thinking about one that's a, a little bit more natural. And I really do like the beetroot-based um, beetroot ones for vaso, vasodilation and performance. But also have a look at the dosing. So with every ingredient on there, there's what we call a, um, uh, a recommended dose. And this is the dose that they use in the studies. So if we find uh, an efficacious compound, let's say something like beta-alanine, which you may have heard of before, if you see that, uh, in your pre-workout, just have a look at the dose of it because what a lot of companies will do, and it's very cheeky, is they'll just add a little bit of it in there just to say that it is in there. But when actually for it to be efficient uh, and effective in your body, it needs to be at a certain dose. And beta-alanine, I think, is a, a effective from 2.4 grams to 3.8 grams or somewhere or around that range. And the one that I was looking at only had 200 milligrams of it in there. So yes, it was in there but probably not at a dose that would do you any good. And it's the same with caffeine as well, right? If you're a coffee drinker like I am, just remember if you take a pre-workout on top of that, that's another hit of stimulus, another hit of caffeine that your body has to filter and figure out. It's another stimulant. 
And if that sort of tips you over the edge of affecting your sleep, then all of a sudden that pre-workout isn't doing anything for you. So have a look at that, the dosages of caffeine as well. Some of them are sort of 400 milligram dose of caffeine, which is about four or five cups of coffee, depending on how strong your coffee is. So just be really aware of that. And in fact, a hot tip for you, I don't get any pre-workouts that have caffeine in them at all. So it means I can still enjoy my coffee, but still get the potential performance benefits from the compounds that are in, um, that, are in that product. I also went to a bed shop. For those in Australia, you'll know Captain Snooze. It's now just called Snooze. It's got a, um, a, a, brass, a really strange brown brand colour, which is questionable. Anywho, I had a great experience. I wanted a new pillow. In fact, it was my birthday and my partner knows how much I love sleep. If you listen to the podcast, you know that I like sleep a lot. And she wanted to get me a new pillow because there's a, been advances in the pillow and sleep technology of late. And one of them is a pillow for people who specifically sleep on their front. So we know a lot of people, depending on their anthropomorphics, I think is the right word, how their body is shaped. Um, and of course, you know, their past experience will have a preference of sleeping style on your back, on your side, on your front or whatever. And apparently on your front is the worst for you, but it seems to be the one that I do. And it seems to be the one that my son does as well, so it might be a bit genetic. But you can get a pillow that will help align your neck and put you in a better position for that. And I went in, and this woman was like, all right, tell me about your bed. Is it firm? Is it hard? Is it soft? Maybe try this pillow. Try this different cool gel technology that wraps around your pillow and makes your pillow colder. It was awesome. So do yourself a favor. If you haven't invested in your sleep, consider it. Firstly, it's a great experience because you get a really nice old lady um, telling you all about pillows but secondly you're investing money into something that's going to invest so much more back into your health so in fact this might be a good opportunity for you to do a bit of a stock take and have a think about your sleeping situation at the moment <coughs> you know if you're a, if you sleep with your partner and you're still sleeping in a double bed I can tell you from experience once you go king you never go back because you still get to be close to your partner. That's the special thing about it. But it also means that you don't disrupt each other when you move around or shift the blankets. And then have a think about how dark your room is. You know, maybe you need to invest in a bit of um, blackout blinds or, or finding a way to take tech out of your room. Or do what I did and invest in your pillow. Because that does have a big effect, particularly on your neck. So that was my weekend team. I went shopping and that's how Bart does shopping. He goes and finds pre-workouts and pillows. Tune in next time. Who knows what I'll buy next. Let's jump into some questions. Question number one. Will getting a fitness tracker <coughs> excuse me, help me lose weight? This is a cool question. And every time I read a New Year's article about the trends of the coming year, the trends of 2021, 2022, 2023, 2024, tech is always at the height of it because tech is slowly taking over our world and taking over how we do things. But I think there's a real benefit to it. But it depends on how you use your fitness tracker to help you lose weight. Just remember, the weight loss is about calorie balance. You need to be burning more calories than you're taking in for you to lose weight. Simply buying a fitness tracker won't do that for you. You have to do that with your, with your behaviors. But what a fitness tracker can do is make you more aware of your behaviors, which is what I like to use it for. So some benefits are pretty, are pretty profound understanding your behavior better by looking at your steps, the calories burnt, recovery, and sleep. And just for a second, I know there's a few people out there that are going, these trackers aren't accurate, don't, don't listen to them, don't read them. They might be, absolutely. And I've, had, I've pretty much tried them all, and all of them have, have had different results in terms of how many calories I've burned that day, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But what I'm more focused on is the trends. So even if that number is inaccurate, I want to know if that trend is going up, going down, staying the same, or what have you. And that data, 
I can use. Steps, I think, is really important. There's, there's sort of a renaissance of doing your steps uh, in the last few years, and now people are sort of poo-pooing it a little bit, <laughs> poo-pooing it. Um, but I think there's real value in it. The, the 10,000 steps, the actual number is really arbitrary. It's just a round number that a Japanese watch company made up as a target for people. There's no real science behind it, but it seems to work pretty well. But if you try and hit your 10,000 calories, uh, 10,000 steps each day, excuse me, that is a behavior, and that's a good positive behavior that you can track. So if you get your fitness watch and you see you only travel, and this has been me the last few days, you only walk 6,000 steps or 5,000 steps, you simply adding 4,000 more steps every day to your routine will help you burn more calories. Simple as that. So a fitness tracker in that essence can indeed help you. And in fact, what I like to do with most people is I use their steps for their form of cardio. So we'll get them in the gym, We'll lift, you know, three, four times a week. And then instead of doing an hour on the treadmill, I'll just ask them to hit, you know, 11,000 steps each day or 12,000 steps each day because essentially it's the same thing and it's more digestible and easier to do consistently. Calories burnt, take this with a grain of salt. There's nothing that can measure our true metabolic uh, output accurately. Um, in fact, in studies, there are some things that can do it quite well. I'm not sure, quite sure how it works, but a sensor or a watch or an algorithm isn't going to be able to do that for you because we're all very independent and we're all very beautiful in that sense as well. But again, what I'm looking at is trends. So I wear a Garmin. I wear two. I'll talk about my two in a second. My Garmin tells me how many calories I burn each day, and I, I burn about 2,800 calories each, each day. But I know I can eat about 3,200 calories each day and not gain any weight, which makes me think that it's under-reporting my calories. There's been other trackers in the past that I've used that overinflate, where I'll burn 4,000, 5,000 calories in each day. So again, take calories burnt with a, um, with a grain of salt. But remember, it's the trends that we're looking for. And recovery and sleep, I think, is one of the most poignant bits of data you can look at. And here's what normally happens. If you're listening to this and you're thinking about getting a fitness tracker or you have one and you look at your sleep, you're going to see that it's rubbish. Usually this happens. You know, eight, Seven or eight times out of ten, people will track their sleep and go, oh my gosh, my sleep is rubbish. Uh, this tracker is wrong. I'm going to throw it out. Or there's something wrong with this situation. They don't think that the, the fault is with them. So my recommendation is to take, again, take the data with a grain of salt, but understand that these are pointing you in the right direction. If it says your sleep is bad and it looks like it is really bad, there are some needles, some some levers you can pull to make your sleep better. And then from that data from the fitness tracker, you can all of a sudden hit your steps, track your calories and see which which days you're burning more or less on, track your sleep and then move a few things around to make those metrics better, then of course you're going to lose weight because of that. There's also sort of two, two, there's two types I use. My, I use my Garmin to tell the time, to track my steps and a constant heart rate throughout the day. You don't have to go as extreme as I do. Um, but it also helps me track workouts. So I can track my heart rate and see that and I can track my, um, uh, my rest periods or my strength training on my Garmin. I, get another, so I use another specialized tracker called a Whoop to track my, my recovery um, my stress, as well as what's called my overall strain. And so with sleep trackers, with um, fitness trackers now, you can get all of these sort of built into one, like the Apple Watch has come a long way and the Samsung Watch has come a long way too. So if you want sort of a, everything all under one, those are the way to go. But if you want specialist pieces, I, I really like my Whip. I think it's quite accurate. And I really like my Garmin for the accuracy you can give me when out with GPS and heart rate and stuff like that. But, you know, a good place to start might be a Fitbit or something a bit cheaper that sort of um, encapsulates everything for you. 
Question number two. Which is better when squatting? Going deeper or going heavier? And I want to tell a story here. I, I frequent a number of gyms uh, in the Sunshine Coast area. And there's this one guy that's usually at one of the gyms I go to. And he just has the most beautiful squatting pattern. He'll warm up. His knees will be in the perfect position. His hips will be loaded perfectly. His spine will be nice and straight. But as soon, as soon as he adds above 80 kilos, his range stops and his form turns to rubbish. It's incredible. And for the, for the length I've been seeing him in this gym, and which was probably about two years now, he hasn't gotten strong. As far as I can tell, he hasn't gotten stronger, but I'm reluctant to judge a book by its cover. But the, the thing here is, is he's not ready for that heavier weight. He should just keep practicing the slightly lighter weight with the full range of motion because here is the answer to the question. Going deeper will allow you to go heavier down the track. If you just keep loading the weight on, knowing your technique's a bit rubbish, you know, you're not dropping your hips lower than your knees, your range is quite short, and you just survive that, and you're sort of just ego lifting to load the heavy weight on, you're only going to get to here. Here's me pointing to a random spot in the room. When, if you dial that weight back, practice on your range, practice going deeper, move a bit slower, move on your mobility with that movement, your potential strength can be here, which is a higher point. So what I'm saying here is, team, take a step back to take 15 steps forward into the future. And this is the same with any other movement as well because remember, whatever range you express, you are going to develop. And I see this a lot with overhead presses as well. I know some friends, um, they're, they're bodybuilders, they're, they're, they're enormous. But they can't fully straighten their arm over their head because they've always done shoulder presses without full range. They've always done partial range. And that is a great expression of what you train is what you develop. And it's the same with the squat as well. If this guy who's got great mobility when he does lighter weights doesn't do that anymore and just trains heavier with a shorter range, his mobility is going to go to trash. But again, this could be you too. If you focus on getting deeper, that will actually enhance your mobility and your strength. You're, you're teaching your body to be controlled in deeper ranges of motion, which is only going to benefit you going forward. So I suppose the answer to this question is I think I will default to going deeper most of the time, but there is benef benefit of going a bit heavier and doing partial reps every now and then. But it shouldn't be every workout, that is for sure. Question number three. What are some underrated exercises for muscle building? Cool question. And I have some cool movements here for you. Some of them are a little bit advanced, but we'll try and give some alternatives as well. And I tried to do one from every body part here. I started with hanging leg raises. So you're hanging from the leg, hanging from the leg, you're hanging from the rig, straight arms, and you're just trying to get your elbows, your, um, your knees to touch your elbows. So you're flexing your spine. Now the caveat here is I see people do this a lot, but all they do, their spine doesn't move, all they do is bring their legs up to in line with their hips. So your spine will do a little bit of st stabilizing work there, but you're not actually moving it, you're not actually expressing it. And so all that person then is really doing is training their hip flexors. And particularly if they sit down every day, it might not be the best thing for them. But what I'm trying to do with the hanging leg raise is to engage my lats, have an active shoulder, and then curl my spine. So I'm trying to get actually my knees to touch my shoulders. And if I do that in a nice controlled fashion, super slow on the way down, maybe a bit faster on the way up, 
um, I feel the best stretch and the best flex across my abs to a point where I can only do, you know, six to ten of them in a set, which means I'm adding a lot of mechanical tension, which can lead to a lot of muscle damage, which will lead to a potential muscle growth. A great hack I've found, and try and stay, me, stay with me here, it's hard to describe this verbally, is if you're in the cell of a rig and you put the bar at a point where if you hang from the bar, the bar is touching the back of your shoulder blades. So if you're thinking about a squat rack and there's a, a pull-up bar right above it, you're hanging from the pull-up bar, you put the bar at a height where if you hang from it, it's touching just below your shoulder blades and then you do a hanging leg raise, my lordy may. That is the most intense pump I've ever had on my abs ever because you're adding stabilization into an into a, in, instable movement. In fact, I might try and get the team here to do a... Um, a, uh, a TikTok video of that of that movement there. But hanging leg raises and anything to do with a hollow position hanging from a bar. The next is a single leg squat with, um, with assistance. So I've got a few things going on with the nerves in my legs. My balance is really poor. So I use these with a, a power band. So a single leg squat is essentially a squat on one leg. <clears throat> and so what you're doing then is pretty much doubling what you'd normally do for a body weight squat. And again, if you work the range on this and the control on this, it is incredible. The biggest VO, VO, VMO pump I've ever had is from single leg squats and you're inadvertently helping balance out your body by doing unilateral one-legged work. So if you've never tried or practiced a single leg squat before, here's a good start. Find a pole, like a rig pole, hold onto it, put your foot pretty close to the pole, your right foot for example, and then push your left foot right out in front of you and then simply try and squat holding onto the pole, knowing that you can pull up on the pole and take the weight off your leg a little bit. Awesome movement. I put in power cleans for glutes because I know booty training at the moment is very popular and I think it will be for a long time, but we rarely train the glutes with power and speed, and I think the power clean is a great movement for everyone to learn. Not necessarily for everyone to do, but for everyone to learn. And there's a difference between the two. I want you to practice it before you load it up. And the reason for power cleans for your glutes, and all it is is a barbell. Imagine a barbell with weights on the floor, and you pull it up to your shoulders into a front rack position. That's it. It's powerful and speedy. And because of that, you're expressing the glutes in a way you normally don't. And you're having to stabilize the entire trunk with this speed as well. Awesome movement. The next I've got is ring dips or ring push-ups. Or it could be TRX if you've got a TRX in your gym. Just a stretch you can do across your pec is incredible and you're forced to stabilize. So if you think you're a push-up ninja, jump on some rings, set them really low to the ground, maybe about you know two centimeters off the ground, the rings of the TRX. Put your hands on top and do a push-up from that position or bring the rings up a bit higher to about chest level and try dips on the rings as well. The added stabilization is incredible and I'm not quite sure on the biomechanics on, on, how, on how, <laughs> how it makes it harder, but it's outrageous. You'll get some sore, a sore chest after that for sure. And then we've got for your shoulders, get upside down. Handstand holds and overhead carries. So handstand holds are awesome. Just find a, uh, a wall. Here's a hot tip for everyone out there. If your gym has a plaster wall, don't use that wall. Find a wall that's solid, a brick wall or a pillar in the middle of your gym and then kick your feet up so you're in a handstand position and your feet are touching the wall to help you stabilize. And you just simply stay there and hold. 
And I need you to shrug your shoulders away from your ears so you have an active shoulder that'll fire up your rhomboids, fire up your traps, and fire up your shoulders. And then to take, make that a bit easier, overhead carries, I think, are very underrated. Again, this fully stacked position overhead, I think, can be really healthy for us if we build stabilization there. And an overhead carry will express that movement incredibly and then finally for your pull-ups look i love pull-ups i think every version of a pull-up will build your lats if you're doing it right and so the the mistake a lot of people make is they shrug their shoulders and they're using their traps more than their lats and the lats are the muscles that sort of run from your armpit almost all the way down to your hip bone they're really large muscles but we can't leverage them if our shoulders are shrugged so any any pull-up variation but in particular an l-sit pull-up so the L-sit pull-up means you have to engage your midline. There's no other way around it. And because of that, your lats have to fire in conjunction with that. So I've had great success um, practicing the pull-up in the L-shaped position. Question number four. This is a good one. I'm a bit apprehensive of lifting heavy. Can you give some advice on how to build confidence? This is, a, this is an awesome question. And this is a question that a lot of personal trainers have to face almost inadvertently with a lot of clients, particularly if they've never lifted weights before, particularly with women who've never lifted weights before. <coughs> and just side note here, um, if there's anyone out there that still thinks um, lifting weights is going to make you bulky, trust me, it won't. Someone mentioned this to me the other day and I love it. They said, lifting weights and thinking you're getting bulky is like deciding not to cook just in case you become a Michelin star chef. You know, you don't just build that muscle overnight. That takes years of very precise work. All lifting weight is going to do for you is make your body tighter and shape your muscles, shape your body, and help you preserve the muscle mass, particularly going into, into older age. Trust me, strength training is the pill that we've all been looking for. We just need to know how to do it properly. So if you have trouble lifting heavy, here's some advice. Start with machines. I'm, com I'm coming back around to machines. There was a time in my life where I thought machines were the devil. They're not, you're not stabilizing. It's putting you in a fixed position. It's only bad for you. And I don't think that's the case. I think they have great application, particularly for newbies, people who, who need to learn to lift, and particularly for people who need novelty and variation in their program. So if you've never done the machines before, practice going heavy on them. And I want you to really commit to this. I want that last. I want the last two reps to be very challenging. I don't want you to finish that set and feel like you had another five sets. If you've never done like a ten rep max before, try it on a machine just to see where your limit is. So here's here's what happens a lot: is people will put twenty kilos on the chest press machine and they'll always do twenty kilos. But if I, for what for whatever reason, train them for a session and see their chest press and see their 20 kilo chest press, that's, and they're doing 10 reps, I know that's closer to their, to their, um, to their 20 rep max. And all of a sudden, if I put that up to 30, but they can still do 10 reps, we don't know where our limit is unless we, until we test it. So if you're a bit apprehensive about lifting heavy, start with machines and just bump that weight up a little bit just to see where you're at. They're safe. You're not going to hurt yourself if you fail on them. Uh, may, maybe the leg press, depending on which machine that you're using, but if you're, if, you're, if you're still a bit scared, have a chat to a coach and they'll be able to help you out through that process too. But then I also want you to think about increasing weights really, really slowly. It could just be one kilo every time you come back into the gym. And then over time, over the course of 10 weeks, you've increased your weights by 10 kilos. You're actually lifting heavier, but you haven't realized it. So don't think you have to jump up the weight really fast. And just another side note here, practice failing. 
if you do if you if you're a free weight master you know you do back squats you do deadlifts you do chest press you know, you're doing some of the more complex movements in the gym it behooves you to understand how to bail from that lift so by this I mean I've seen some awful stories and there's awful videos on the, on the internet of people failing a squat and that bar just crushing them, folding them like a pair of tongs. But there is an art, there is a skill to bailing or failing that lift, particularly when it comes to the bench press and the squat. So at lighter weights, practice how to bail from a lift and that will also give you confidence in going a little bit heavier. And of course, the obligatory get a coach. I mentioned it before, but... If a coach, look, objective measurement of your fitness and objective programming of your fitness will almost guarantee your results if you're with a good coach. So if you've been in this game for a long time and you're frustrated, find a good PT. Trust them, trust their process, and I can guarantee you some positives will come from it. Question number five, is there any clout to training for your body type? And I'm sure you've heard of this before. Um, the mesomorph, endomorph, ectomorph, they're called somatotypes and they've been around for a very, very long time and they're a very general way of putting people into categories, right? And so there are some theories out there that our somatotype will tell us how we digest carbohydrates, you know, how well we'll respond to anxiety, um, how likely we are to put on weight, all of that sort of stuff. And I think there is a grain of evidential, of evidential proof to that but we can't put weight onto it because everyone is everyone is so different. And so what I see a lot of people do is they, they sort of use their somatotype as an excuse. Oh, I am an endomorph. I am this way because of that. And because of that, I'm not going to change everything because that's just who I am. I see it done with genetics as well. You know, my genetics dictate that I'm this way, which means I can't influence it, which is absolutely incorrect. And it's the same with somatotypes too. Look, your body shape could indicate some things. And you can think about this as sports, right? So a certain body type will perform really well as a certain sport. A swimmer will have long limbs and a short torso. Just have a look at the Michael Phelps researchers out there. It's crazy. Um, Olympic weightlifters will probably be closer to a quote-unquote mesomorph because they're a bit shorter, can gain muscle easier, and can have higher outputs of force. And endurance runners, endurance cyclists, are more likely to be maybe a tad taller, depending, but ectomorphs skinnier they have more endurance more more mitochondrial density they can they can facilitate long bouts of exercise with minimal in comparison energy expenditure sports tell us this there's a certain body type to certain sports but there's also there's exceptions to all of these rules there are weightlifters that are really tall there are you know shot putters that aren't completely obese yet can still throw out and high amounts of power so, look, some types, I think they come from a grain of truth. I think there is. They wouldn't be around if they didn't. But don't let it, um, yeah, don't, don't let it dictate the way you are. Don't let it allow you to use it as an excuse. And so, you know, certain diets and training plans will work for some people. It won't work for us. But, look, if, if you're completely confused, just co- come back to the basics, right? Don't, don't use it. Don't do a body type specific training program just stick to what works and we know lifting weights eating whole foods and eating enough protein will get you 80 percent of the way there so look at that there's a little bit of clout but i don't think as much as most people think question six <clears throat> what's the easiest way to balance my left and right sides my right side seems to be dominant this is a cool question and i think can be solved in a lot of training programs 
And the answer is unilateral training. And I think uni, so unilateral just means one leg or one arm at a time, one limb at a time. And I think it's really underrated, particularly for those who want to build as much muscle as possible. I suppose, I suppose because if you think about it, if we're always using two arms, just thinking out loud here, team, two arms and two legs at the same time, there's always going to be an imbalance. If we only do two arms and two legs at a time, we're going to make that imbalance more and more prominent. But if we change up for maybe, you know, every three months of the year, we prioritise single arm and single leg movements, we're going to we're going to work better to evening off those imbalances. And what I see a lot is people going to these unilateral movements, then they go back to their bilateral movements, their squats and their deadlifts, and they're stronger because of it, because they've strengthened the weaknesses that they were hiding under using two arms and two legs at a time. And just remember with imbalances, it's also got to do with tightness too. Is it often something is weak and something if something is tight there's also something that is weak and so imbalances can be doing that too so there's a there's a there's an, um, there's an element of mobilizing and stretching that can be talked about into this conversation too but i suppose the, the easiest way is to do a unilateral phase or two where let's just say instead of doing a barbell shoulder press you do a kettlebell shoulder press instead single arm that'll help balance off those imbalances and here's another tip as well if you're if your right side is dominant, is that right? Yep, if your right side is dominant, I want you to start every unilateral movement with your left side and then I simply want you to match the reps and the weight with your right even if you know you can do more. So if we're doing 10 kilo shoulder presses uh, on my left, I do my 10 reps, that's a 10, I move over to my right and I get to my 10 reps on my right and I'm like, oh, I could probably do more, I won't because it's more important to strengthen the left side and keep the right side where it's at. I don't want to strengthen the right side more because then we're not evening off the imbalance. Question number seven. Do I need to have a protein shake immediately after my workout? Yes, you have 15 minutes. If you do not hit the 15-minute window, you will build no muscle. That's a joke. That's not, that's not quite how it works. Look, the, the anabolic window myth has been around for a long time. And again, I think it's something that was started from a grain of evidence but exacerbated through the supplement in industry just to make you have more protein shakes. But we know our body is different after a workout. There are certain receptors that are upregulated that help us use our, um, our glucose intake, our carbohydrate intake more proficiently to help replenish our muscles with glycogen. Uh, and we know our muscle protein synthesis will be more receptive after the workout too. So eating protein will help rebuild the body. So our body is in a different state. But what we've found out is it not, it's not like a half-hour window. It's closer to a two- to, to four-hour window. It's a long time. And that window is different for everyone, and it's different depending on your training age. So the, the, the more trained you are, the shorter your window will be because your body is, is used to it. But so here's the caveat though. So I suppose, sorry, let me take a step back. The most important thing is total protein over throughout the whole day. And so if you, ha you having a protein shake after your workout helps contribute to that, awesome. Then the anabolic window, that whole theory doesn't matter. You're just working towards your protein goals. But if you're hitting your protein throughout the entire day, mainly using whole foods, you don't really need to have a protein shake after your workout. Um, but what you should consider though is carbohydrate intake. Because carbohydrate receptors seem to be upregulated after your workout. <clears throat> and if you have another training session later that day or you're playing with your kids later that day, it would behoove you to replenish your carbohydrate stores a bit faster. So maybe think about having some carbs after your workout as well. 
my go-to, just because I'm at a point now where I'm doing a lot of volume, I'm doing a lot of huffy puffy stuff, or I'm moving to a phase with a lot of huffy puffy stuff, I'll have about 30 grams of protein and about 70 grams of carbohydrates after my workout, just to help with recovery, because I'm struggling to get my carbs in later in the day. So um, do you need to have a protein shake immediately after your workout? Not necessarily, but if it helps you, it helps to contribute to your overall protein throughout the day, then I'm all for it. And number eight, very contentious way to finish the episode. Is skipping breakfast a good way to lose weight? Very interesting. Much like our discussion with fitness trackers, remember weight loss comes down to calorie deficit. It's not the magic eating window. It's not skipping breakfast. It's not cutting out carbohydrates altogether. It's not the magic pill that allows you to lose weight. It's the ability for you to eat less, full stop, end of story. And it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how you do that. And so, yeah, <laughs> I've written that down here as well. Carbs aren't the devil. <laughs> Eating too much is, all right? And it can be too much protein, too much fat, too much carbs. So I want you to think about <clears throat> this whole diet world as that. You know, they all work, but they all work because of calorie deficit, which means we can lose weight without them too. Fasting is what we're talking about here. And a lot of people sort of use the term fasting when what they're really doing is just being a bit lazy and not waking up early enough to eat breakfast. And that's hey, that's okay. But the research actually says the opposite. There's abundance of research saying that having a breakfast is correlated to lower obesity and lower overweight levels. And I tend to fall into that camp too. That's what I believe from experience and anecdote as well. Some of the fittest people I know, both aesthetically and performance-wise, all eat breakfast. There's not one of them I can think of that actively skips breakfast. And I think the reason for that has got to do with blood sugar um, and particularly appetite control. If you have a decent hit of protein, a decent hit of good fats, in fact, Courtney in our office, I'll tell a story about that in a second. If you have a decent hit of protein, and a decent hit of fat for breakfast, it's going to help regulate that blood sugar levels throughout the day. If you miss breakfast altogether, you're going to be ravenous. And to remember, the only reason why you're losing weight while fasting is because you're simply eating less. We can still do that with eating breakfast. And so Courtney in our office, um, me and her sit next to each other, and she, every time she had a smoothie for breakfast, she would get really hungry maybe an hour or two later. And we sort of went through what's in, what's in the, the smoothie. And it was mainly fruit and protein, which is great, you know. It's a great start. She's having a decent hit of, of protein for breakfast and some whole foods as well. And then all I recommended to her was to add some avocado. So she went and bought some frozen avocado, added it to her smoothie, and all of a sudden she's not hungry until lunch now because of that appetite control. And so remember, this stuff affects our behaviours. If we can do positive things in the morning in particular to affect our behaviours later in the day, I reckon that's for it. Um, so can you lose weight while skipping breakfast? You absolutely can. But I don't think it's, I don't, especially in a modern world, I wouldn't recommend using it as the sole reason for you to reduce calories. Um, and I think there's, there's some great spiritual benefits to fasting. Like I, I used to, a few years ago now, every month I'd do a whole day fast, 24 hours, <clears throat> no food, just water. And I found, a, I found it a really great way to ground myself and just to recalibrate my relationship with food and I almost got some sort of spiritual benefit from it, but I also noticed some gut benefits from it because I'm pushing the envelope in terms of intensity in the gym and eating a lot of food throughout the day. It just gives my gut time to recover, and I found some digestive benefits from that too. And you might find that um, from the uh, from skipping breakfast as well. 
But I don't think it'll be as profound as a 24-hour or 48-hour fast. But but in general, my recommendation isn't to use fasting for weight loss. Uh, I think it's just, a, it's just a really easy way for someone to reduce their calories throughout the day, and I think we can do that in better ways. So, team, there you go. Fitness full episode. Eight questions we got through. If you did make it this far, hey, thank you. We do appreciate it. Just to reiterate, make sure you get around us all on all the social medias, follow the show, all that sort of stuff. And if you can... Um, tell a, fam- a family friend, a family friend, a family member, or a friend about the show, and get them to listen to. Just grab their phone, type in "personal best," and hit the follow button. That will be great. All right. So then, thank you for listening. Follow us on all the socials: J E T S and all the social pipes. And until next time, keep living your personal best. Bye.